Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mimosa. What do you have, Jenny? I'm drinking a vodka soda, and on this episode, we're exploring the 1996 Atlanta Olympics bombing, also known as the Olympic Park bombing. In July of 1996, the city of Atlanta, Georgia, hosted the 26th Summer Olympiad. In preparation, former Mayor Maynard Jackson created the Corporation for Olympic Development, a nonprofit that spent $76 million in repairing sidewalks, planting trees, and building parklets and installing street lamps in the city's most trafficked corridors. As part of the process, Centennial Olympic Park was built and served as the center of the Olympics. It was a space where thousands gathered daily to revel in the excitement and energy of the Olympics. The games were halfway through on July 27th when thousands of spectators gathered for a free performance by the band Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. 34-year-old security guard Richard Jewell was on duty when he noticed a large olive green military-style backpack known as an Alice Pack leaning against one of the concert sound towers about 150 feet away from the stage. He notified the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, GBI agent Tom Davis, of the suspicious bag, and the pair cleared a 25-foot area around the backpack before notifying sound technicians and calling in the bomb squad. Law enforcement stepped in to help evacuate the crowd, but many concertgoers were intoxicated and did not heed the warnings. As the evacuation process was still going on, a pipe bomb in the suspicious backpack exploded, filling the air with gunpowder. Nails were shot into the air, injuring more than 100 people. The crowd was confused at first and thought the noise and lights were part of the concert. 44-year-old Alice Hawthorne of Albany, Georgia, was killed when a nail pierced her skull, and 40-year-old Turkish Radio and Television Corporation cameraman Mali Uzanal died of a heart attack while racing to the scene. According to Time magazine, just 18 minutes before the explosion, a 911 call from a, quote, white male with an indistinguishable American accent warned that the bomb would go off at the park within 30 minutes, end quote. Since the bomb went off before the 30-minute period, the FBI theorized law enforcement at the park were targeted. Security experts had reportedly, quote, unquote, privately worried that Olympic Park was most vulnerable to terrorist attack. Richard Joel was called a hero for his diligence and quick action. However, that quickly changed and the FBI became suspicious of him. Just three days after the bombing, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who used unattributed or anonymous source, ran a story stating Joel was the quote-unquote focus of the investigation and that he fit the FBI's profile of a lone wolf bomber. A media firestorm erupted and aggressively focused on Jewel as the quote-unquote presumed culprit. Reporters stayed outside his mother's apartment and his life was examined for weeks by the media. According to the Washington Post, other media outlets portrayed Jewel as a quote, loser and law enforcement wannabe who may have planted the bomb so that he would look like a hero when he discovered it later. End quote. In the following months, Jewel was thoroughly investigated. His home was very publicly searched twice. 
His family and friends were interviewed, and he was placed under 24-hour surveillance by law enforcement. Jewel was called to FBI offices to take part in a quote-unquote videotape interview that would be used for training purposes. It was not made clear to Jewel that he was a suspect, and he was essentially tricked into waiving his right to a lawyer. A year later, the Department of Justice called this tactic a, quote, major error in judgment, end quote. Jewel, who was never charged, was eventually cleared in October 1996 when no evidence against him was discovered. In 1997, he received an informal apology for the investigation leak from U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno. That same year, Jewel spoke to the House Judiciary Crime Subcommittee and called for an independent probe into methods used by FBI agents during their investigation of him. Then, on January 16, 1997, a bomb went off outside a suburban Atlanta abortion clinic. EMTs and police arrived, and an hour later, while they were still working, another bomb exploded near a trash bin, injuring seven people. Just like at Centennial Park, a nail-latent bomb was used and law enforcement was targeted. Five days later, on January 21st, another nail bomb went off outside the outdoor space of a busy lesbian nightclub, the Other Side Lounge in Atlanta. In total, five people were injured. Another bomb in a backpack was found that night, but was thankfully safely detonated by authorities. The bombings were all determined to be connected to the Olympic Park bombing, but investigators were still without a suspect. Then, in January 1998, an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama was bombed, killing Robert Sanderson, an off-duty police officer who served as the clinic's security guard, and critically injuring Emily Lyons, a clinic nurse who lost an eye in the attack. A pickup truck that was reported at the crime scene before the explosion was later found abandoned at the Georgia state line. Investigators linked the automobile to 31-year-old Eric Rudolph, who was named as a suspect in February 1998 and was officially charged that same year. A years-long manhunt for Rudolph began. Rudolph was anti-government, anti-abortion, and despised the LGBT community. He was also a skilled outdoorsman and fled to the mountains of North Carolina until he was finally arrested in 2003 by a rookie police officer who found him rummaging through a grocery store dumpster in Murphy, North Carolina. Rudolph told authorities that the Olympic Park bombing was supposed to quote-unquote confound anger and embarrass the Washington government in the eyes of the world for its abominable sanctioning of abortion on demand, end quote. He also revealed the Olympic bombing was meant to be part of a week-long campaign of explosions in down Atlanta's power grid, shutting down the games and embarrassing the U.S. government. Further, he shared that the bombing near the other side lounge was targeting law enforcement and not the club's LGBT patrons. Rudolph went on to deny any association with the notoriously racist, anti-Semitic, and homophobic Christian identity movement, though the Washington Post did claim Rudolph had quote-unquote drifted in and out of white supremacist groups. Though he did apologize to the innocent civilians and their families involved in the Olympic Park bombing, he showed no remorse for Sanderson's death or Lyons' injuries from the Birmingham bombing. Lyons went on to say, quote, he just sounded so proud of it. That's what really hurt, end quote. In his 11-page statement, Rudolph also said that 
while homosexuality does not pose a threat when kept in private, the, quote, attempt to force society to accept and recognize this behavior, end quote, should be met with, quote, unquote, force if necessary. Rudolph pleaded guilty and was sentenced to four consecutive life terms in July 2005. He took a plea agreement by telling authorities the whereabouts of 250 pounds of dynamite and other explosives he hid in North Carolina, which helped him avoid the death penalty. Some found this ironic due to his strong anti-government stance. His sister-in-law, Deborah Rudolph, told journalists, quote, Knowing that he's living under government control for the rest of his life, I think that's worse to him than death, end quote. Richard Jewell went on to marry his wife, Dana, in 1998, and the couple moved to a farm. Jewell worked as a police officer in Pendergrass, Georgia, where his partner was fatally shot in 2004 during the pursuit of a suspect and a sheriff's deputy in West Georgia. He also gave speeches to college journalism classes about his experience. On each anniversary of the bombing, Jewell would visit Olympic Park, now a tourist destination, and place a rose and card where Alice Hawthorne was killed. In 2006, Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue commended him at a bombing anniversary event where Jewel was awarded a certificate for his heroism. Perdue claimed, quote, this is what I think is the right thing to do, end quote, and that Jewel, quote, deserves to be remembered as a hero, end quote. Jewel was quoted as saying, I never expected this day to happen. I'm just glad it did. Richard Jewell sadly passed away from heart disease at the age of 44 just one year later. Watson Bryant, Jewell's friend and attorney, has been quoted as saying, quote, with his mother, he endured with dignity and humility, worldwide condemnation and ridicule for 88 days, end quote, and that, quote unquote, commemoration is much better late than never. Del, what are your thoughts on this story? I want to first off by saying when it comes to Richard Jewell, he definitely should be celebrated for his heroism and shame on the FBI for putting him through hell for no reason. I think that when it comes to Eric Rudolph, he's a gross person. And the fact that he had no remorse for the lives that he took and the injuries that he caused just shows what type of person he is. In addition to the fact that he decided to harm innocent people to take a stand against the government and other things that he didn't agree with. I think that we see in a lot of different cases where the targets of a crime don't really match with the motives of the person committing the crime. What does killing people at the Olympics do to curtail what the government is doing to its citizens in Rudolph's opinion? It does nothing. So just like innocent lives taken, I think that it is definitely karma that he will be under government control for the rest of his life, like his sister-in-law said, definitely where he deserves to be. And hopefully one day he'll be able to show some remorse and apologize for his actions. But I think that's highly doubtful. What are your thoughts? I agree. It's a really horrible thing that Richard Jewell had to go through, especially that, 
he was a true hero in this situation. He's the one that noticed that backpack. And although there were two people that died, he saved so many people's lives. And that's how he needs to be remembered. And I agree it is karma for Eric Rudolph, the type of punishment that he got. And I also agree with what you said about how does this Olympic bombing have anything to do with what he was upset about? It doesn't make any sense to me. I think that he probably also wanted some attention. I mean, I know he went in hiding to avoid attention and being uh, in jail, but I think that there was some level of attention that he wanted as well. He's a very cold person and he got what he deserved in the end. And I do agree with his sister-in-law saying that the worst thing that could happen to him is to live in jail the rest of his life and not face the death penalty. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that in this case, the death penalty would have just been a quick way out for him and probably what he wanted instead of being in jail for the rest of his life. I also think that it's interesting when talking about the statement that he had wrote where like he's admitting that he doesn't even really believe the things that he's saying. He's just publicly supporting it for whatever reason, whether that's he's trying to find like a sense of community with other bigots or whatnot. But it's like you did all that and you don't even believe it. Not that that would make it better, but just hypocrisy and just illogical thinking on his part, of course. The Olympic Park bombing took place at the height of the U.S.'s court TV frenzy. And like we said, Richard Jewell faced intense media scrutiny and was largely deemed guilty before he was even charged or properly investigated. This is often called trial by media, a term used to describe the impact of television and newspaper coverage on a person's reputation by creating a widespread perception of guilt or innocence before or after a verdict in a court of law. This is particularly true when high-profile people like celebrities face trial. Media is considered to be the fourth pillar of democracy and a responsible press is vital. Free and robust reporting, criticism, and debate contribute to public understanding of the rule of law and to a better comprehension of the entire justice system. It also helps improve the quality of that system by subjecting it to the cleansing effect of exposure and public accountability. One problem that arises is balancing the right to a free trial with the concept of freedom of speech and public interest. Trials by media and unfair media coverage of criminal matters tear at the heart of many of the fundamental aspects of the criminal justice system, including the substantial undermining of the presumption of innocence and the real risk of the erosion of the right to a fair trial. This phenomena can sway public opinion against an accused person even before the court takes cognizance of the matter and sometimes even before a person is charged. Extensive media coverage often elevates the average person to armchair judge, jury, and executioner. This is often referred to as the court of public opinion. Commercial media coverage and social media commentary often sensationalize a story. All of this combined can taint a jury if a case does go to trial. 
There is also the possibility of irreparable damage to a person's reputation when reporting on allegation or charges and not about convictions or guilty pleas. Decisions not to charge and acquittals are nowhere near as sexy and often don't make the headlines. 80 days after the initial news report, U.S. Attorney Kent Alexander issued a statement saying Jewel is quote-unquote not a target of the bombing investigation and that the quote unusual and intense publicity and quote surrounding him was quote neither designed nor desired by the FBI and in fact interfered with the investigation end quote. Later in a New York Times documentary on the Jewel case, he said that, quote, the obvious lesson learned from Richard Jewell is avoid identifying people as a suspect if there's not really a good reason to do so, because it can lead to just what happened in Richard Jewell's case, the identification of someone who was not only innocent, but a hero, end quote. When Jewell spoke to the House Judiciary Crime Subcommittee, he ridiculed the media for portraying him as a quote-unquote violent man and a terrorist, he, saying, quote, they were all lies. Through it all, the FBI never had the integrity to tell the world that the media was wrong, end quote. Jewell settled libel lawsuits against NBC reportedly for $500,000 and against CNN for an undisclosed amount. He also filed lawsuits against the Atlanta newspapers that first reported he was a suspect in the New York Post. Other well-known trial-by-media stories include Amanda Knox and the murder of Meredith Kircher, the McMartin preschool incident and satanic panic hysteria, and the death of Azaria Chamberlain, who was killed by a dingo and whose mother was wrongfully incarcerated for her death. And I wanted to mention, too, that in March of 1998, Eric Rudolph's brother, Daniel, cut off his hand to protest what he saw as the mistreatment of Eric by the FBI and the media. Del, any thoughts on trial by media and how Richard Jewell was unfairly treated? I think that it's one of the drawbacks of how public everything is when it comes to certain cases. You definitely want to avoid assuming that someone is guilty of a crime simply because the police named them as a suspect. And we've seen in many cases where it has to go to the length of changing the location of the trial, thus changing the jury pool because of how tainted it is. I think the media has a responsibility to make sure that they are accurate in their coverage of crimes. And I think that the FBI has to definitely be diligent when they are releasing information that they know will be spread and the effect that it's going to have on someone's life and their reputation. How about you? I completely agree. And I feel like we are just so used to it as a culture. You know, we hear so-and-so was a suspect for this. And how often do we think, oh, they probably did it. And that's not right. It's just like so ingrained in us. And we do really have to unlearn it to remember to take a step back and think, okay, well, we need more details. We need the whole story. And oftentimes not every detail, rightfully so, is shared with the public. So we need to keep all of that in mind. Look at these other cases that we talked about. These people's lives were destroyed. Richard Jewell's life was destroyed for a while. And he had gone on to say, like, people are always going to associate me with this. And I don't think that's something he wanted. I don't blame him for that. It's a lot to recover from, and we can't have 
what I would call careless journalism, really. It's not right. It's unethical. I had to mention what Eric Rudolph's brother Daniel did. The audacity to say that your brother is being unfairly treated in the media when he was a domestic terrorist and killed several people and injured hundreds more. It's despicable. And we didn't really get into this, but there is a lot of talk about whether Eric Rudolph was part of these larger white supremacy, radicalized Christian movements, I guess you would say. Maybe he was cutting his hand off in protest of that because that wasn't who Eric really was. But it's ridiculous to me to say that when Richard Jewell, who did absolutely nothing wrong, had to endure that for so long. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think the thing is, people always want to make their family members look better in the public eye, you know, especially after they've been accused of a crime. But to go to that length is just so ridiculous to me. And especially in light of what Richard Drool experienced, the fact that you want to also say that that happened to your brother who committed the crime, it's just so wild and so insensitive to me. And I do agree with Richard Jewell saying, you know, why didn't the FBI really stand up and say, like, this is unnecessary and that Jewell wasn't a suspect anymore? And as far as I know, he never did get a formal apology. I don't know if it was someone in the GBI did say something. And we talked about how Janet Reno did say he deserves an apology, but I don't know if he ever got anything like in writing or any type of meeting with any official. And that's pretty embarrassing too. And we've talked about this many times. Why can't people, whether it's like the government authorities, why can't people just admit when they're wrong and apologize and move on? Because that's the kind of stuff that makes people distrustful. Like we said, it was an anonymous source that tipped off the Atlanta Constitution Journal about authorities' interest in Richard Jewell. And whilst the use of anonymous or unattributed sources is common in journalism, areas of ethics can arise. According to the Society of Professional Journalists, or the SPJ, quote, few ethical issues in journalism are more entangled with the law than the use of anonymous sources, end quote. As the SPJ says, keep your promise not to identify a source of information, and it's possible to find yourself facing a grand jury, a judge, and a jail cell. On the other hand, break your promise of confidentiality to that source, and it's just possible you might find yourself on the receiving end of a lawsuit. Anonymous sources can sometimes be the only key to unlocking a huge story. So an example of that would be Deep Throat and the Watergate incident. A 2020 poll from the Pew Research Center showed that 82% of U.S. adults say that there are times when it is acceptable for journalists to use anonymous sources, with 67% saying it is acceptable only in specific cases, a view which echoes the standards of professional journalism organizations. The SPJ Code of Ethics contains two pointed statements on anonymous sources. The first one. Identify sources when feasible. The public is entitled to as much information as possible on sources' reliability. 
The most important professional possession of journalists is credibility. If the news consumers don't have faith that the stories they are reading or watching are accurate and fair, if they suspect information attributed to an anonymous source has been made up, then the journalists are as useful as a parka at the equator. To protect their credibility and the credibility of their stories, reporters should use every possible avenue to confirm and attribute information before relying on unnamed sources. If the only way to publish a story that is of importance to the audience is to use anonymous sources, the reporter owes it to the reader to identify the source as clearly as possible without pointing a finger at that person who has been granted anonymity. If the investigating police officer confirms John Doe has been arrested, the officer is, quote, source in the police department, end quote, and not even a pronoun should point to the gender. The second one, always question sources' motives before promising anonymity. Clarify conditions attached to any promises made in exchange for information. Keep promises. The information gathering business is a give and take practice with a lot of public officials. Some are willing to provide information only when it benefits them. When someone asks to provide information off the record, be sure the reason is not to boost their own position by undermining someone else's, to even the score with a rival, to attack an opponent, or to push a personal agenda. Media outlets' practices vary, but journalists should not overlook the danger of legal problems and credibility damage for publishing anonymously sourced information that is not confirmed by public records or credible sources. Before journalists allow themselves to be used by an anonymous source, they should be sure to question whether the news value warrants whatever the source hopes to accomplish. Journalists should never take information off the record without the approval of a supervisor and an understanding of the news outlet's policies. Some organizations do not allow anonymous sources except in the most vital news stories. Journalists also should make sure they and their source are talking about the same agreement. In 2016, Burt Rufton Jr. of the Atlanta Constitution Journal, the newspaper that first announced Jewel as a suspect, ran a piece reflecting on their role in the media circus. In it, Rufton says, quote, Our reporters soon learned that FBI agents were suspicious of Jewel. We obtained specific and documented details of their suspicions and theories that implicated Jewel. After deliberating for hours, we decided that our obligation was to report what we knew in the next available edition of the newspaper, end quote. He states that, quote, almost immediately, our reporters began to unravel the false narrative that implicated Jewel, end quote. Jewel's libel suit against the newspaper was dismissed, and it was proven that it was accurate to report that authorities had focused on Jewel. Rufton thoroughly believes their story was justified and, and said, quote, I would never argue that everything we did was perfect, but we wrote in a crucible, did the best we could, and acquitted ourselves well. That doesn't mean I haven't lost sleep over Jules' ordeal, end quote. He also claims that the story made the team better journalists who made sure that their work was more thorough in the future. 
Del, do you have any thoughts on using anonymous sources and on the Atlanta Constitution Journal's reflection on the case? So I definitely think it's okay to use anonymous sources. We see it all the time with cases, and a lot of times there's good reason for a source to be anonymous. A lot of the times you hear that they don't have complete permission to release information, but they think the information should be released anyway. In a lot of whistleblower cases, you want to keep the person anonymous to avoid any blowback that the whistleblower might get or any retaliatory actions. So again, I think it's okay to use. I definitely agree that you have to be weary about the possible motives that an anonymous source may have and to make sure that you are looking at the importance of the information that they have before determining whether you're going to maintain their anonymous status. When it comes to the Atlanta Constitutional Journal, I definitely understand where they're coming from. The FBI is seen as a credible source, especially when they are the main agency that's investigating. So if they're telling you that this is a suspect and all you're doing is relaying that information, I do think that's protected speech and shouldn't be something that the newspaper should be held liable for, especially since They also ran reports about him being exonerated and who actually committed the bombings. I understand where Jewel is coming from, where he's just like, okay, anyone that put out this information, I want to see them pay. But at the end of the day, they were relying on credible source. And again, they did correct the record once they had more information. What about you? I totally agree with everything you said. Anonymous sources are really important and we've used them for so long. And like we went through, it's not like people just like willy nilly whenever they want use anonymous sources. There is a a very thorough process for it and a lot of thought that needs to go into it. So I thought that was interesting to learn about because I don't know anything about journalism ethics, but that's something that's really important and will continue to be important for Freedom of the press is very important and keeping the public up to date with what is going on is critical. I agree again with what you said about the Atlanta Constitution Journal. I want to say like I'm glad that they even reflected on this to begin with because we did just get done saying so often these organizations cannot come forward and say like we made a mistake or anything and they didn't make a mistake but they did I guess they acted a little fast before the FBI could really like go through everything. And once they did learn, they tried to spread the wrong information, but I think it was just too late then. And he did say too, like if we hadn't done it, someone else would have. And that is true too. And like we said, they're really a big like media circus around crimes in the nineties. And I mean, of course, a bombing at the Olympics is going to get worldwide news coverage. Tons of people, everybody around the world wants information on that. So it was just bound to get out at some point. And he does say that it's made him lose sleep. He's admitted to that. And he's also, I think, I don't know if he's befriended Richard Jewell's friend and lawyer that we talked about earlier, but they have gotten in touch with each other too. And I think maybe they've like cleared the air between them and 
hopefully everyone involved can just be at peace right now. They did in the specific article, and we'll have that linked in case anybody wants to read it and learn more. They did mention certain cases where because of the Richard Jewell report, they did thoroughly ask people involved if they could use the information and if they could quote them and whatnot. So it definitely sounds like they did become stronger journalists because of him. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the treatment of Richard Jewell and the Olympic Park bombing. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. As always, stay safe.